0: Today, on our last episode of Season 4, the one and only Mira Jacob. We talk about growing up reading as a person of color and trying to shoehorn oneself into a story peopled with little or no people of color. We meet her badass slash lover of a cat, Samuel L. Jackson, and we talk about the importance of curiosity above all else. Plus, Foo's Impression 3000 machine makes another appearance. You won't want to miss this one.
1: He is Samuel L. Jackson, so I just need you to know a tiny furry version of Samuel L. Jackson just walked in the room. So Does that, that like, like, like to make you I'm more
2: intimidated
1: nervous. by that.
0: Yeah, I, was gonna I say, know, as, as you should
1: reader. be. But also, he's a lover. You know that, also. Wait about Samuel L. Jackson. You're like, yeah, you're a lover. Okay, <laughs> all right. um right. I'm a lover, motherfucker. So th- <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah, so- and, oh, you can and you can take apart and put your computer back in like two
1: minutes. <laughs> okay but like let's not let's not go overboard there. Really what I did was I ran and I got an earring. I like jammed it in to figure out what was in there and oh, yeah. I was like oh my god. And like what? This is a fucking disaster? Oh you have a board meeting and your child just hugged you with a wet mouth of like yogurt? Yeah.
0: Awesome. <laughs> Sweet. Here we go. Let's turn that into fashion. I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers. For writers. Today's guest is writer Mira Jacob. If you've yet to read her memoir and conversations, Good Talk, I'm Jealous. I'm jealous of what will happen when you first sit down to it, maybe right there in the aisle of your beloved indie bookstore, and the book sucks you into that heavenly place called the reader's gap, where space and time cease to matter. Ed Parks' review praised the work for Jacob's disarming wit, which I think is the touchstone of a good memoir. It needs to disarm you. Jacob does this by welcoming you into her indecision, her confusion her wonder at raising a child against the backdrop of that tender point where politics meets the personal in 2016 America. In addition to being hilariously funny and a masterclass in dialogue writing, the rhythm and punch of it could sustain craft classes for days. The turn of Good Talk, and for that matter, her exquisite novel, The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, is that she doesn't flatten the world to make sense of it. She complicates it. She explains the stuff she knows, stuff she doesn't know about a world we think we know, but don't really. Before long, you're laughing, crying, and struggling to figure it out right along with her, and holy fuck, are we hungry for it. In a talk she gave to young women writers at the NYC nonprofit Girls Right Now, she said that early on she didn't know why she wanted to be a writer. She just wanted to make words that made worlds. For the rich conversations that come out of the world she has wrought, we are so lucky. Mira, it's so good to have you on the show. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. And what a lovely introduction. I nominate you to write my eulogy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> In a hundred years.
0: Yes. It's been a very long time. I read that you were really heartened by people's response to Sleepwalker's Guide, that they were able to find themselves. You know, even though it's a story about an immigrant family and they're dealing with laws, they were able to find themselves in it and relate to it. And the same thing with Good Talk, even though it's a very specific story, it's your very specific story about parenting a kid who asks a lot of questions that you don't immediately have the answers to. I think there's a lot of space for us to find ourselves in there, whoever we are. I'm wondering about the sort of intentionality behind that. I mean, that's a lot to come to the table with when you put your pen to page. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's funny because you also, I think when you start writing a book, you don't come to it with the idea of maybe a lot of other people are going to get this, right? You sort of, for (laughs) me, come to writing with the feeling of there's a feeling that is bigger than me and I don't know what to make of it and it's very painful and now it's going to find its way out of me. Mm -hmm. And so... The process of that because that's really what I started I would say good talk with was this I kind of started in a place of terror because my son was asking me all these questions and I didn't have answers and I felt really inadequate and because it wasn't just the normal like haha on parenting websites like is not it just hilarious how kids ask the darndest things and we don't have the answers it was like no, oh my terrifying. god the right like <laughs> The world is so fucked and you're asking me about the specifically about the fucked part and how do I explain mm. that? I'm sorry, wait, just to be clear, we're allowed to curse on this. Yes. Yeah, yes. Okay, great. I good, good. I yeah. No, hurt. no, no. Right I, I know. I know. I get yeah, I know that. And then I was like, what if that was a fantasy I have about <laughs> how the world would work if I wanted it to work a certain way? Okay, good, because I just have ridiculous potty mouth and I have for since I was like seven and and understood what curse words were. Good. All right, continuing. So like, what do you do? How do you explain, how do you then take apart what's happening and say, okay, I, I have to let you in on this thing that I have known about the world. And I myself have never figured out how to overcome it. Cause I don't think I, I don't know that I can,
2: mm-hmm. I don't
1: know that that's happening in my lifetime Weirdly, when I had you, I decided in some clouded place in my brain, probably very hormonal, that maybe it would be possible in your lifetime. (laughs) Now I'm feeling that that's probably not possible either. And in fact, we're going backward. Like, how do you make sense of all of that? So, which is to say, when you say, like, you know, being heartened by the response, I would say I started off in a really terrified place putting this together in the course of writing the book. I started believing that there were probably people that felt like me. And I remember just having to tell myself, especially because I think when you get on social media or something like Twitter, where it seems like everybody has sort of sharpened themselves to their finest, you know, limited word response and everybody has a quick take that's really smart, mm-hmm. it's really hard to be vulnerable in the place of that. It's really hard to stand in a murky middle and say, I'm in the murky middle. Like, I'm not on the both sides. I'm definitely, I'm on, like, I have, I, I believe in my people and I believe, I believe that people of color are being roundly and solidly fucked all over the world. What do we do about that? Right. But, like, I am in a place where I also need to know what, what does that look like in my marriage to a white man? What does that look like with my white in laws? What does that look like for my belief in love and for my son who is half white? Right. Though he presents in the world as a brown boy. So, Yeah. So finding out that there were a lot of people that similarly felt that way was really, was really heartening. Also, you know, sad because that means a lot of us are here. (laughs) Right. Right.
2: Right. Yeah. Some ways, if you were the only one, then you'd be like, well, okay, maybe it's not that bad, but no, it's worse than you (laughs)
1: thought. Yeah. Because it's like, because it's also like if there are so many of us that are going through this and also so many white families that are married into this. But the the people of color within those white families, you know, are dealing, are holding on to this level of pain and alienation. What does that
2: mean? Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. Yeah, yeah. Do you mind reading an excerpt? No, yeah. Um. Okay. So wait, do you want me to read? Do you read it from Sleepwalkers, or do you, or should oh, yeah, I read yeah. from Oh yeah, yeah. We're gonna to, let's switch gears and go to Sleepwalkers. So maybe you can okay, great, set it up, which is a, a fantastic novel, and I found my way to it after having read. Good Talk first, and I hope this is the experience for a lot of people who didn't get a chance to read Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing the first time I came around. I imagine that it probably works out like this for some people who read Good Talk first and then were just like so hungry for more of your storytelling.
1: Oh, that's so great to hear because I I always wonder, like, what is, I wonder what their relationship is to that. Like, how is, how is it experiencing actual, like, long
0: sentences and paragraphs once you've been through the shortened form? Well, frankly, um, I mean, if I can be honest, it makes me a little bit pissed because you get to do both of them really fucking well, and that (laughs) seems unfair. Like, can you just save some of the talent for the rest of us? Stay in your lane, (laughs)
2: whatever lane it is.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. I
1: will take the whole highway. No, thank you. That's really sweet. Okay, so. This part that I'm going to read, that I just have to tell you, just preemptively tell you, I have a cat that just walked in the room. So if that, if he meows and you hear it, tell me and I'll reread the sentence <laughs> over. He's really excited that we're doing this interview. I'll, I'll just Thank leave it in. Much. I'll
2: just leave it in. No, I, I like animals. Okay, I, I've all right. Added a we lot do kind of love animals. animals. Yeah. I've okay, heard. good.
1: So this, yeah, this cat's name, he came from the shelter. His name is Samuel L. Jackson. We couldn't oh take word. away the name because That's we were so like, good. oh my God. And he is Samuel L. Jackson. So I just need you to oh, know a tiny furry version of God. Samuel L. Jackson just walked in the room. Does that so like, God, go you make you more I'm nervous. intimidated
0: by that. Yeah, I was going to say. You I know, say as you either. should be.
1: But also, he's a lover. You know that also. Wait, about Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> of you're course, like, of yeah, you're a lover. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I'm a lover, motherfucker. So... <laughs> exactly. Okay, so here's the section that I'm going to read. I also want to tell you guys that whenever I read, I read in my character's voices and Both of the parents in this novel are Indian from India. And I explained that beforehand because it's an accent that I had myself when I was growing up. And it's an accent that I love. And it's an accent that I hear them in when I'm writing their dialogue. So if I don't read it, if I read it in a flat American voice like my own, I feel like I'm lying. And then then the reading gets very messy. Okay. (laughs) So this is a part where Amina and Akhil, who are brother and sister, and it's the 80s, And they're living in new mexico have just had their first day of school and they're coming home to a house that has been a little bit strange over the summer and this is their conversation on the ride home i don't want to go home amina said akil took a long drag flicked the buck out the window i'm sure mom's fine all day without anyone well maybe she'll get it together maybe that'll be a good thing so she can be more like monica i don't think he meant that the words haunted them of course never mind that outwardly they reassured each other that the fight in june was just one more skirmish in their parents never-ending battle inwardly they felt damned by the very sight of it instantly hardened their hearts crystallized with shock what on earth could have prepared them for the late night return from an office party the car idling in the driveway lights on door flung open their mother screaming like her back was on fire the noise alone had brought them running to the front door and as all children are riveted by the sight of parental demise what they saw kept them there they'd never seen their mother drunk before and in fact would never see her drunk again but there she was lit from the knees down by the car headlights sorry pooling at her feet screaming go live with your precious monica in the hospital then like she was a soap opera star Drinking like that in front of the people I work with? Thomas had shouted, pacing the
3: driveway. What do they think of now? Isn't that what you told me? Monica this and Monica that, and why
1: can't you be more like Monica?
3: Monica can hold her liquor.
1: Monica is a whore! Kamala stumbled a little, frowning down at her ankles. She's my assistant, Kamala. You'll not talk of her that way. Touching you!
3: The Americans do that. It's their way. You would know if you knew any. Now he's going to start again about this job business. And I tell you, I would kill him. I would kill him to tiny pieces. We're not going back, Kalan. You have to at least try to fit in. Yes, because there's nothing to do here between cleaning up after your children and cooking their meals and making sure they're doing their homework, right? Do something. Volunteer at the shelter and get a part-time job. And now he thinks I'm sitting like some fine mogul princess counting up my fangos while the bloody servant girls take care of things. Why not wander around all day and some odd come home and cook the dinner and clean the house like some stupid woman in a perfume commercial? She started to laugh. Well, Emperor, what's his name? I refuse. Kamala, I refuse. She glared at him. You think that this changing and changing and changing ourselves to fit in with these people is some good thing? She tilted her chin up, daring him. Fine then, you do it. Go away and become some idiot who smiles all the time for no reason,
1: because I don't care anymore. I really don't. The surprise was that he had gone away. As Amina and Akhil stood in the open doorway, their father marched straight back to the car, gunning the engine and roaring back down the driveway. If he saw them standing there, it didn't stop him, nor did he return for dinner the usual one or two nights after a fight, for days and then weeks, their father was not seen during waking hours. Kamala went into an angry gourmet morning. She made every meal as though it might be Thomas's last, churning out flaky parathas and paper-thin masala dosa only to watch in fury as they grew limp in his absence. She plucked coriander leaves as Dallas and Dynasty enfolded on the television, sickened and consoled by the sordid love affairs Americans seemed genetically predisposed to partake in, she borrowed Balakurian's Hindi movies and watched them to the exact point where everything fell apart, and then walked around her kitchen, scolding the cupboards. Amina sighed, tucking against her seatbelt. Who knew what they would find when they got home? She knew better than to try to guess.
0: I'll stop there. Wow. Mm. Oh my those, God.
2: Those voices,
0: okay, those that okay? accents are like
2: yeah. voices of my childhood, too, because I, I grew up. Um, one of my best friends down the street had parents who spoke exactly like that. So it's very comforting actually. <laughs>
1: well, it's funny because I, I feel like I know sometimes when people see me in readings, especially and I'm and I'm really sensitive to this, if I think it's uncomfortable sometimes, especially if white readers laugh at the accents, I think it's hard for people that naturally have an Indian accent, mm-hmm. it puts it puts all of us in a really weird position because I think it's easy to to feel like I'm building something in order to laugh at an Indian accent. And I'm and I'm absolutely not. I just right. wouldn't do that.
2: And at no, the same time it's just really like, funny. Like what they're saying is really funny.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean at the same time it's like how do you honor the character who is real and has real depth and humanity. Like how do you honor them and then flatten them into some American affect? It's really weird. Anyway, it's a choice. People make different choices. I make the choice to read them the way I hear them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's this scene, Kamala. Kamala speaks to me so much because I think there's like something, especially in Sleepwalker's Guide, between a daughter and a mother, there's this line you write that says, Amina shook her head. It was amazing, really, how much knowing Kamala didn't actually help so even <laughs> you know which is a, a hilarious line but it's also true that you know your mom your whole life and then it you know it, and it still doesn't either diminish the shock of hard situations or reactions that you didn't know were coming or that you knew but you still can't unfeel the way you feel about them and I just totally it, that relationship was so good to me. It was, it was so well done on the page and spoke to me in wonderful ways. It was so good. Thank you for that.
1: That's so nice to hear. So Kamala was the character that like came into the story and changed the entire book. Like when she came, she just sort of arrived fully <laughs> formed. And I was like, Oh my God, what do I do with you? Who are you? And, and it was really funny. Cause every time I would write a scene and I would want it to go a certain way and it was about Kamala, I would feel her sort of standing over me. And if it started straying, you know, into what she didn't, she'd be like, no, I didn't do that. I wouldn't do that. No, I won't do that. No. Like, it was just this crazy thing where I was like, oh my God, what do you mean? And then I would, I mean, it was, it was really funny. The learning curve on that book was really sharp because I would try to force my way through it. Where I was like, no, you will. And then the scene would fall apart and I swear so it was fun. like every time I'd be like, okay, what do you, what would, what would you do then? You know, it was like, I would like <laughs> come back me. to this moment. I was like, fine. Just what would you do? Come What would you do? And then
2: she'd be like, well, what I would do. And then she would tell me. And I was like, fine. It's like every mother's revenge, basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it totally was. And you
1: would not believe it. My favorite thing to get, I get, there's a whole slew of category of letter that I get that's like the... The drunk grown-up Malayali woman who's like you wrote my mother and I am so angry and I've had just enough to drink to tell you what that does to me and then they just go off and I really love those letters they are so like bizarre but I also really appreciate like the place that you have to go in your own head to be like I'm writing a drunken letter to you author because I need you to know what this has done and how I feel. And I'm like, "Yep, I'm here to get your drunken letter. I will read your drunken letter. I will raise my own glass of whiskey to you. We have survived. Thank you.
0: So yeah, I wanted to follow up on the horrifying story that's actually in Good Talk, but, and because it's a memoir, it's a real, it's a real thing that happened, um, of the radio producer who was coaching you or telling you, what names should be used? And, and this was actually about Sleepwalker's Guide, right? He was talking about characters in yeah. your novel yep. and said, no, those names are going to be too hard for our listeners. Like it was all couched in this sort of concept of what he felt like the listeners could quote unquote handle and that, you know, he was going to change how you referred to as instead of East Indian, he said Asian Indian before settling on South Asian, which,
2: Asian <laughs> India. which translates
0: so to you don't get to call yourself what you call yourself because our listeners won't understand. And so I I guess a the first question is, did he ever circle back after Good Talk came out? I don't know how you would. No, no, he never did. He I, I don't know if
1: that person. It's so funny, those moments or I feel like I don't know if those. I don't know if people recognize who they are in those moments. They are so wedded. To their version yeah. of reality,
0: yeah, that's frightening to me <laughs> because
1: yeah, I mean for sure that was you know what was really interesting about him, and I was really glad to have um, my best friend Allison Hart. She she's so great at kind of swiftly and deftly unpacking something. And I was like, I don't know why I'm so upset about this. Like this is, I know it's upsetting, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not that upsetting. Like so many terrible things have happened and this just isn't really one of them. And she said, she's like, because he's, it's just so casually racist. Right. And she's like, it's just like, so casually, I'm sorry. The only way for me to do my job properly is to be racist. Like you can't expect me to do it another way. It's really the only way I can do it. And I was like, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. It's yeah. the entitlement behind it. This yeah. Like, I just, I have to be racist. Yeah, I just have to. Like, you can't, I mean, what are you asking? If you're really asking for something different, what are you really asking? You know, it's that kind of a grieved, like, yeah. dude that doesn't know what to do with this decade. And um, um the whole decade. That much all the centuries we seeing it. Yeah. Anyway, but just that that guy who I have, who I have been contending with my whole life. Yeah. I will tell you that's really interesting to me that we are in a place where you and I can have this conversation because even as I was writing that scene, like as I was writing it for the book and getting ready for it to go out in the world, I was pretty sure that I was going to write that scene and no one was going to get what I was so pissed about. Mm. Hmm. Which also makes me really sad. (laughs) But that's Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's definitely been the experience of my life of trying to talk to people about what's really going on, what things really feel like. Is the kind of disbelief or the kind of of like, okay, right, but you're a writer with a novel published. Is this really something you need to complain about? I mean, you got a lot of stuff to feel good about. And it's like, yes and no, I do. I absolutely do. Mm -hmm. Is that is my lot in life so small to you that I that I can't also be asked to be treated like my white peers are? Right. Is it like, am I just so lucky to get in the room to you right. that I can't ask for this kind of common sense right. decency? Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, we've it, invited you into the house now, so to speak. So now why are you going to be upset about all
0: this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's yeah. the thing that we, we think about it a lot in publishing too is that like there's just this, that so much of this is based on a feeling of what the audience can handle like there it's just this amorphous sort of concept of what readers want and if you break that down if you start peeling back layers for the longest time it's been uh, you know men in publishing white men in publishing are presuming to know what white readers want to hear you know which like you said is that's casual racism that's not even casual that's yes like and also not even not even
1: themselves I think believing that that's what white readers them believing what white readers want I don't think they even understood for no, the no, longest no, right. time that they were assuming their readers were white right right
0: because they just they would say I mean? things like my audience or the audience right yeah or, yeah the audience yeah yeah and and if you were to ask
1: them are there people of color She's She's like yeah sure of course because <laughs> that because that to them is there. They're benevolent enough to imagine that, right? So it's this <laughs> like really- or <three> or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, of course I give them, of course there are those ones, of course. And I give them mental space to allow them into the room of possibility, but never really thinking like, oh, what if that opinion, that person's opinion, it weighs every bit as much. What if this, like, what I think of as a very tiny quadrant that we should somehow satisfy. I'm not sure how- is actually much, much larger, is actually a huge roiling, like, pool of humanity that I've managed
0: my entire life to ignore. Right. Yeah. That's wild. Wild. I mean, there are other words, but yeah, wild. Yeah. (laughs) Also, like, what about
2: white audiences who actually want to read about people who are not like themselves? I mean, that's the other thing. Like, it's also assuming... silly things about white audiences
1: no i mean all around it's like it's just the the assumptions all around that you have to unpack are myriad right and also i think the idea i think what it is is it's really it is that keeper's fragility
0: yeah yeah we were talking about before the show that it's like not only is race is it racist it's just like really fucking bad gatekeeping because you keep all good stuff out you know you keep a ton of good stuff out (laughs) like
1: yeah when I made that speech to the publishing industry about I made a speech about that incident to the publishing industry Mm -hmm. and that was Mm -hmm. my kind of underlying message was two things it was one this is not fair to me this is not fair to this vast country that you are underserving wildly but also as a business person this doesn't even make sense yes (laughs) Like, you if know, I can't appeal to, argue to you
0: on a human level, on the level of humanity, yeah. let's talk about yeah, yeah, the bottom line. That's the speech where the mics didn't work and you actually were standing on a chair shouting. Is that right? Yes,
1: I was. <laughs> yes. I was standing on a chair. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was a great look because also I think I had had like something in one of my high heels to protect my feet, like one of those weird shoe things that you wear that was also on the edge of my toe. I noticed as I was standing, on like giving the speech, I was like, oh, that's the thing to not make my toes crush against my front of my heel. Good, good that that's there. Let me, let me speak loudly about racism. Like, honestly, is this the weirdest collection of like, of bodily things happening in that moment as I was trying to kind of make sense and navigate a really emotionally charged moment. And it didn't go well, as you know, like it didn't go well. My speech, the microphones weren't working. That sucked. Um, People were way too drunk to receive the speech. But also and it's really interesting to me because I think Publishing has so much invested in believing that they're on, they're always on the on the good side of the learning yeah. curve, right? So Liberal. even, yeah. right? So even in the moment, the day that that speech came out, there were plenty of people that were like that wasn't really about that. That wasn't really white people weren't really turning away from that because they didn't want to hear her. They, they it was just that everyone it was just too noisy in the bar and it was
2: like, huh. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> how convenient. How yeah, convenient. like also just like wow, really, really, <laughs> okay. All right. Can you moderate my AWP panel for me? (laughs) I I could happily step down, and you could. What's your your AWP panel? Yeah, it's on diversity in publishing. Oh boy! If you're there, yes.
0: Please come and give your speech again. (laughs) I'm I'm opening. It It could be yeah. It it. could be like a Gonzo moment, or we could just be like, we called you all in this room, not to actually (laughs) have a panel. We're just gonna give the mic to (laughs) Mira. Who's gonna read a speech from 2015?
1: (laughs) Hold on. Are you ready? (laughs) Make sure
0: you bring like the
2: foot pads or whatever. (laughs) Uh, So, were there books that you grew up reading that you wanted to insert yourself and your friends into who weren't usually represented? Um, Okay. This, by the way, when I got this question,
1: I like looked around my house for cameras because I was like, "How did you know?" (laughs) Um, I'm currently working on a piece right now actually a visual piece right now about this about the weird way in which and specifically the books that I'm looking at right now just for that piece are these books that are very much that sort of informed my own rebellion Mm -hmm. like what does it mean to rebel and you know what was crazy is that all of the books that were sort of like the you know the books about people gone you know who are off the mainstream, who we were gonna do their own thing. Like, for example, the one that I loved when I was 12 um, was S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders. Sure. Like I must have read that like, yeah. approximately 200 times. <laughs> but then I moved swiftly on to, you know, a couple of years later, it was Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Mm-hmm. Like all of them were informed by a certain kind of whiteness. So in the course of reading those books, I would find myself inserting myself and my friends as characters and then rushing us out of the room when I understood the whiteness wouldn't tolerate us, Mm -hmm. which was a really wild way to read things like to be really, really, really empathic and feeling and feeling connected and feeling connected. And then one line in Jack Kerouac's and pretty sure it's about a girl he meets in California on a farm and I can't recall the exact line for you I should be able to but it's I think it's about him worried that he might have gotten her pregnant and basically running off
2: mm.
1: and it was about her like the dark girl that he might have gotten pregnant and then he's like oh back on the road <laughs> <laughs> I hope I remember this right but I really do think it's.
2: where I was I like I do remember that I think there right? might be a straight line but from the outsiders to on the road like I think I went from one to the other because that's yeah. super white male too even though it's delicious oh for sure but yeah they're they're, she's mexican she's actually that's what i mean so then
1: all of a sudden i'm like wait i think i'm the i think i'm the pregnant mexican and hold on hold on (laughs) and i kind of push myself back into the white body so i don't have to deal with being the brown girl who's left with the white mayhem all over her you know what Uh i mean like that uh that thing and specifically what's so interesting to me about that is the idea that even within The imagination of what the fringe could look like what the people on the borders could look like they were never me they Mm -hmm. were never me like even in my you know in that specific part of my youth when i was looking for those people they didn't exist which is wild now when i think of like what someone like jason reynolds is doing yeah you know, the way he just speaks to that so profoundly, my son is gobbling up his books right now. I just Um, read long way down. Yeah. 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 Oh my God. I mean, it's so fascinating to watch a kid who feels seen by a book.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: You know, and I know that this is a lot of, I think Jason Reynolds has done an enormous amount of work Mm -hmm. to make sure that that's what is happening. I think he's just, he's an extraordinary person, but, um, it's so wild to think about me clinging to on the road and simultaneously slamming my body in and out of passages. Mm-hmm. And then my son, like even at 11, seeing himself in something in a, in a more full way.
0: Yeah, You know, kind
1: of coming to it. And, and of course not everything aligns. My son's an Indian and Jewish boy who's moving around Brooklyn and trying to figure out what everything means. But I think just the idea of the respect for a young man of color, the respect for that body, the respect mm-hmm. for that mind, is so deep.
0: What does Z think about Good Talk? Yeah, man, he's hilarious. So <laughs> he said,
1: he, When the book was coming out, so I drew it, and he saw me drawing it. I had to teach myself how to draw to do the book. So he, I want to so just first like got- <laughs> that's a
0: sub question that we'll have to come back to because what the fuck? How like? <laughs> <laughs> you
1: <chat. laughs> well i could i mean so my husband's like you should tell could kind of draw before so i could kind of draw before you i mean i could show you my journals like i drew uh-huh. but i didn't know how i was sort of like how would you be able to produce this on a mass scale what does it mean you have to learn how to draw on a computer when you draw on a computer that takes away your personality for me because i'm mm-hmm. because i'm not i'm not a graphic artist it's not something i've been doing for my whole life so when you draw on paper there's a personality or certainly i have a one personality when i'm drawing on paper it's a really different personality from the one on the Mm
2: -hmm. when i'm on
1: a screen because there's no Mm -hmm. friction
2: right
1: so part of it was like figuring out really simple things like (laughs) how do you draw a nose like noses are really weird (laughs) they can go bad quickly you know
0: Um, fingers fingers are weird hands are really hard yeah yeah
1: and just proportions and all of that and so part of it was just learning that but the other part of it was just learning to master the equipment. So at first with Z, he would sit opposite of me and do the keystrokes to zoom in and out of a picture while I was teaching myself so that he wouldn't be bored to death. So it was sort of babysitting while getting work done. So I'd be like, you know, get me in there, buddy, control H. And he would control <laughs> HS over it. You know what I mean? And it was like, like let's zoom in now. Hold control on. My, on. my son would love that. I'm yeah.
2: Shoving he would dial us device. in and he'd
1: be like, you know, and, the, and the really fun part of that, too, which was really helpful because, you know, six-year-olds and seven-year-olds are just brutally honest. Is I would try to draw an eye or something, and I'd be like, all right, back us out, buddy. Let's see how I did. And we would back out, and he'd be like, definitely not an eye. You know? a <laughs> <laughs> really rough. Good critic, rough critic. Yeah. But his take on the book was interesting because at first when we would have the conversations, he would listen. He would see them. He would reread them, and he'd be like, oh, yeah, that, that, that. Funny, funny. And then, you know, like a month later, which I later realized because of the amount of time he was alive was like two years of my life. But like a month (laughs) later, he would read it and be like, did I say that? And I was like, what do you mean? Definitely you said that. Yes, that's what you just, last month you were like, oh, and he was like, yeah, okay. And then two months after that, he would read it and be like, oh my gosh, I'm so funny. You know, it was just like, it was like he was just, it was a character and it was no longer him. And so knowing that and seeing that early on really made me understand that at some point this wasn't going to feel like it came from him at all. So then I started thinking about what do we need to do to protect you Mm -hmm. then if this doesn't feel like it came from you at all? Because I know I'm writing it because it it did come from you and and it's painful, but I also know that you are your own person in your own body moving through the world and to have a product out there that represents you that you don't feel comes from you can be really harrowing. So... Yeah. So then we just started having a lot of conversations about that, you know, like, and, what and is what it?
2: Did, what did yeah. you do? How did you do well, yeah. yeah.
1: So we had, I guess the way, the, the big thing that I told him before the book came out, because he started getting recognized on the street a little bit when we would be oh. walking oh, because shit. of the, because I drew him. We would be like, Oh my God, you're that kid. You're the kid. And that's oh really gosh. weird. Mainly just when we would go to readings, mm. mostly like, you know, really a wonder people that did not mean anything by it other than I'm no. excited. Right. But it's really scary when you're six and seven and someone's like, you're that kid. And you're like, what kid? What? <laughs> so I'm not said, that
2: kid anymore. Yeah,
1: exactly. I'm not the kid. That was I'm sorry. That was me two months ago. Like, <laughs> right. really, it was like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I said at that point, I said, listen, I drew you in this book as one version of you. I did not get to all of you, nor did I even try. And the truth is you are so much more interesting than anything I put in the book. And I know that. And daddy knows that. It's really important to me that you know that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because I don't want you to ever feel like you have to perform the version that you are in this book. Like, that's just not it.
2: That's yeah, not it. You're mm-hmm.
1: allowed to change. You're allowed to, you're allowed to not be this way anymore. You're allowed to think differently. You're allowed to say that doesn't, you know, I'm not that way. Like you are allowed to have your own life that is independent of this.
2: So, well, I'm going to steal that for my conversation, my eventual conversation with my child. <laughs> Stuff
1: yeah, because I think it's I really read about him. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really, you know, it's also like this is your life. So we had that talk, and then I also said to him, which I was really glad I said before the book came out. Um, he said, "Listen, this the you in here was six to eight, and you were it's a six to eight year old." is a little bit like having a benevolent alien with you at all times. Like, you know, he just sort of wonders about things and doesn't have the larger world to give him context and ask these really sweet but harrowing questions. And I was like, and you're not that person anymore. And part of the reason that I could write about this is because you were asking really loaded questions without knowing that they were loaded, Mm -hmm. but you're old enough now to understand all the, like certainly a, a fair amount of the implication in some of these questions. And I think when I'm touring, there might be some people that need you to perform a certain kind of racial innocence because it makes them feel okay and just never feel like you have to do that like if somebody asks you to do that you could just walk away mm-hmm. and that has happened like, people will come up to him and be like tell say the michael jackson part again say the thing <laughs> oh, and it's weird because it's like no this is life this is a memoir this is not a show that you watched and i i get the confusion because i turned it into a graphic novel but we are not a tv show right right, and this is a kid uh, you're talking you right. just turn you just and walk go. away without any explanation yeah. and he was like
2: oh i
1: can <laughs> like because <laughs> i don't that's not usually a rule in our family sure, the, the, yeah. the usual rule is respect the
2: adults around you
1: yeah,
0: yeah. But and not yeah, when
2: they're can. asking you to perform like in odd ways well actually at all
1: <laughs> well they're asking and when they're asking you to specifically also i mean we have to talk about what that is if they are white adults asking you to perform a racial innocence for their entertainment walk away yeah walk the You're fuck not a away show. right? yeah yeah. like right. this is awful i wrote about this from a real place in my heart if they need us to reenact that for their
0: entertainment something is wrong with them walk away um, i have gifted good talk to so many of my friends who are parents and also my good friend is parenting a mixed-race child as well and um and we've talked about it extensively and, and feel like buoyed in both the ways that there were missteps that, you know, that you chart and talk about and like the brutal honesty about your relationship with your husband. But also we're, so, we're sort of in awe, like the story you just told about your ability to navigate. Um, and so I'm wondering, like the other piece about parenting is that it, like you figure it out and then it all fucking changes because they're not Gosh, 6 day yeah. anymore <clears throat> they're like 10 we don't, yeah. i think our yeah. my middle child is your son's age and so like you you finally get it and then it just like fucking falls apart so i was wondering if if you feel like you're prepared for the next stage or if it's still sort of you know a new kind of shit show
1: no i think it's always new i think it's always new right like there's there's never a point there's never a point at which i feel like, okay, I got this one. I got this yeah. one. We know how to fly through this. Like, we're good. We're good. <laughs> um, I really don't feel that really until like that stage is like, it's the last day of that stage. And I'm like, I got it now. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's too late. Yeah. Great. I think the thing that has helped me a lot being a parent to this particular child, but also it helped me a lot when I was a child with a parent is my dad was always really curious about me. Mm. Like curious in a way that I think adults aren't often curious about children. Meaning mm-hmm. sometimes when he talked to me, it was like he had met me for the first time
2: mm-hmm.
1: where we would sit down and he'd be like, well, what, you know, why do you like that? And that's so interesting. What's that about? You know, and just asking me questions and it was really nice that he did that. I think about that a lot because I think what it did was it set me up to believe that I deserved someone to be curious about me if I was going to be in a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that I head for now with Z is not, I don't have a ton in in terms of like, this is the way we're going to handle things and it will be steady forward on. I feel like the thing that I try to do is maintain curiosity because for me specifically, curiosity is the opposite of fear. It's the opposite Mm, of nihilism. yeah. Yeah. It just, it's sort of like, stay, stay curious. What what happens if you can ask a question about this? What is the thing that you need to be open to? How do you stay curious in this moment? And from what I understand, the thing that the teenage years rob from you a lot is their sense of curiosity about you. Like mm-hmm. it's all sort of figured out. And so you're kind of and so I think what I what I think about a lot is like, how are you going to maintain curiosity when it's no longer when it's no back to
0: you? Yeah. yeah. the pub journey, the publishing journey a little bit from um, having sold your novel and then coming back to a new publisher with something completely different and how you got from one to the other.
1: Yeah, okay, so actually, so the way that, that happened is it was actually the same publisher as Random House. So the way that that worked just on the on the back end in the publishing side is one editor at Random House had bought my novel, Sleepwalkers originally. and she moved on before that book came out. And Mm -hmm. so another editor had inherited me and he was wonderful. And we did that process, the kind of going out with it together. But I wasn't, you know, it was one of those things where he inherited the novel. And then when I had this one, he really encouraged me. He's like, yeah, put a pitch together. Let's see. And I did. I did a 100 page pitch because I was really sure that no one was going to understand what I was trying to make because I couldn't point to other examples of it.
2: And did you Um, have and
1: you had the art? Yeah, I mean I had to teach myself how that part, but I was like, here's one example of the art. I had one piece that I had drawn and put up online yeah um, and that was the one where i had drawn it on paper and put it on top of the michael jackson albums and then taken uh-huh. pictures of it from my dining room table yeah yeah <laughs> so like based on that i was like well, you should let me draw a book and the funny <laughs> part of the publishing industry is they have all of these questions about every other thing but no one was like can you draw no one said oh, that she- because if someone would have said that i would have been like not really you know it was just it was so once but what was interesting is it was like i had you know i'm i'm pretty transparent about this because um, I was 40 when I got my first book published. It took a while. Mm -hmm. Um, And meaning I'd been trying to publish things for 20 years. And um, so I like to say that sort of loudly and consistently because I think women and especially women of color are taught to count themselves out of the game Mm -hmm. very, very early. And I think the industry thrives on us counting ourselves out. So I just want to say that. And so, and also in terms of what that means is to sell this book, I wasn't sure the industry was going to understand it. So I made a 100 page proposal with a very deliberate attempt to have a marketing plan to talk about who this would appeal to and and why. But what I really did, the other thing that I did was I took, um, when I initially published that first piece, which is just the Michael Jackson portion where my son's asking me all these Mm -hmm. questions. I published it on BuzzFeed and I did that because they provide you with the back end, which means that they give you as a user, if you upload the content yourself, you can see where it went viral, when it's going viral, who stayed on the page for what length of time. All the stats that have published. And then you can put that in your proposal, right. which is what I did. I turned that right. into a marketing uh-huh. plan. And I uh-huh. said, I think that, you know, to, to specifically fight against what is the, um, what we were talking about before the fragility wrapped in an imaginary audience I said yeah. no this is my audience <laughs> right. my audience is this you are not serving this audience this book can serve this audience yeah right. and so then they bought it and that first editor that I was working with he was great he also moved on he got into an- the publishing industry just you know a thing so right. he, Transient
2: thing. yeah he
1: got um he got another job and he moved on as well and I had a moment where they were going to gave me to kind of the next person in line, which I'm sure is like a wonderful person who I didn't know. But what I realized was in the process of making this book, what I was most worried about was that the editor of it was not going to be as fluent in the conversation about race as I was because they hadn't been thinking about it because they were white. So they were coming to it from the point of view of somebody who had way more funny, cagey feelings in directions I don't have them and not enough guidance. So when that was happening, I looked around and I was like, I remember I talked to Alex Chi about it, who's a good friend and he's also in my writing group. Mm
2: -hmm. And I
1: said, you know, I'm scared that I'm not gonna have an editor that can really challenge me on this. Because what I was worried about, to be honest, just to be totally clear, I wasn't worried about an editor who was gonna stand in front of me being like, you can't publish that, That that offends my sensibilities. I was actually worried at that point about the opposite, which is somebody who was so nervous about mm-hmm. trying to engage in the conversation that they were just going to let me do whatever in the, like with the idea that they're being open-minded, right. but the kind of open-mindedness that comes with not engaging because you're too fucking nervous. Right. So not I was like, let work. me have somebody in the room that's going to fight with me. Who's going to fight with me. And of course my mind naturally went to Christopher Jackson because I had seen the work he'd done on ta Coats' Coates book. And I had seen, I had been following his, trajectory with Victor Laval and Matt Johnson and a lot of other writers Mm -hmm. whose work I thought was sort of interesting race-wise and I remember because Alex said to me you know you could you could ask him to be the editor of your book and I was like oh no I don't know I don't think I can okay yeah maybe (laughs) I will because actually what he said to me is you know you can ask for an editor of color and I was like no I can't can I no I can't can I and this was in you know I think it was 2016 and he was like you know you might as well And so I reached out to Chris Jackson and I said, I'm Mary Jacob and I have this book and I think it might be of interest to you. And would you at all consider taking me on? And he wrote a very nice letter back saying like, this is not the proper channels. You know, he like, this is not the proper channels. If someone would bring me the book, I I would, I would take a look at it. But I'm, you know, like, it was sort of, it was a, it was a very nice note that was basically like, this is not in my control and good luck to you. Mm -hmm. If somebody else suggests it to me, I would absolutely take a look at it. So I went into a meeting with Random House with Susan Camel, who has passed and was a real advocate for this book. Mm. And she and I, it was sort of, you know, we talked about it. And it was a really funny thing because at first um, I think they're very protective of Chris's time. And they're like, you know, Chris really handpicks his people and it's not really like we can give them the book. So what I said was I have it on good authority that he's a fan. Which I extrapolated from him saying in his email back, "I know who you are. I really liked this one comic. Like, you know, what I mean, like, was like, I was like, I was like we'll hey, that it's
2: leverage. It's yeah. Leverage. And I was like, I have it on
1: good authority that That's he's a fandom. fan. I'm,
2: That's though.
1: God forbid for sure. he hears this interview and he's like, you jerk. Anyway, so they were like, oh, if he's a fan, then sure. You know, like, if he's a fan and you're not wasting his time, then sure, we'll give him. You know, we'll let him know." they passed it on to him. Here's the wild part of that Uh in the weeks that I was waiting to hear back about whether or not he took the book, I sent it to him. And then I just, I had, I had the end of the book to write and I didn't hear back. And after the first week I was like, okay. And then after the second week I was like, oh my God, he passed. And it just crushed me. Uh And then I was like, buckle up, Jacob. You cannot, you cannot be crushed. It's the last part of the book. (laughs) You are not allowed to be crushed about this yet. You can cry later, cry later, cry later. And so then I did this weird Jedi mind trick where I was like, he took the book. No, he took the book. He loves the book. He wants the book to be. I just had to lie to myself, essentially, so that I was not so embarrassed to write the book. I mean, I think what was happening to me before was I was reading it and I was like, Chris Jackson hates this book because he knows you're a fool and this is a terrible book. And then it was just undermining everything. And I was like, no, 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 go the other way. (laughs) deliberately delude yourself i totally told myself a huge lie i finished the book writing it for this fantasy version of chris jackson who believed in the book Uh and then funnily enough i wrote them and i was like okay so the book is done and just let me know which editor i'm giving it to and they're like oh yeah no it's chris jackson he wanted it and i was like Was anyone going to tell me this? It was really funny. And I think it was one of those typical things where, like, everyone thought everyone else had told me. Oh, jeez. And I was like, well, that's good. No, that's cool. I just lost five years of my life.
0: Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. And Thanks I'm living nice. with an
1: imaginary Chris Jackson. So that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. Let me put a suit on him. Hold on. I mean, it was really funny. and But I was so relieved. And I was relieved when he got it. And he and Victory Matsui who has since left the industry, who is a wonderful editor. So the two of them took it on and they worked on it with me together. And that is maybe the most delightful editing experience I've had. And when I say delightful, I mean, oftentimes I would leave meetings with them and like weep silently on the way home being like, I don't think I can do the thing they need. I don't know who I am. I feel weird. I didn't feel like I was having to do what I've had to do the entire rest of my work life, which is to be, five people in the room one of whom is carrying the entire onus of the racial conversation quietly by herself trying to forward everything like i felt like i had partners in that and i felt like they were pushing really hard and asking me questions and kicking the loose parts and kicking the parts that were weak and saying why why is this weak like what Mm -hmm. is this and Mm -hmm. so that was the experience did i answer your question that was the longest answer i'm so sorry no
0: that's (laughs) it's this is our bonus round so quick answers and the category this season is opposite so we're looking first for the word that always makes you cringe when people use it in polite company and the word you wish you could figure out how to use more in polite company the word that makes me cringe Mm -hmm. panache oh (laughs) that's a good
1: one can't stand it i it's it's weird because it just makes me want to it makes me want to break something yeah
2: um
1: every time i hear it i just want to like Punch a window. <laughs> I don't know why? It's not for me that word.
3: What's and the, what's the word
2: origin that, of that word? Do, you, do we know? Panache. Is it, is, is it's it, got to uh, be French, French right? French, yeah. Okay.
1: okay. It's got to be French, and I think I think the thing about it is that when I I hear people using that word there's like there's something about it to me that just there's a falseness to it right away
0: mm-hmm. that i
1: can't stand so to me in my head it lands up being the opposite of the thing it's supposed to They're represent trying to do it, yeah the word i would wish to use more yes i was like i all the things I'm,
0: I'm like no you use that one plenty use that one plenty <laughs> we can go with a favorite a favorite that you like to use
1: i mean i have to stop saying seriously but mm. I say it a lot. And one of my friends who is Spanish, when we were in Spain, she was like, ah, Vira's back, seriously, seriously. And I was like, okay, all right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you could change one thing about our conversation about race on a personal family level, what would it be? And then on a global cultural level. I don't think mm. that's a very short answer. Okay,
1: on a, on a family level, it might actually be the same thing. I wish there were some way to interrupt the idea that love is the opposite of racism. Mm. Because I think that does an incredible amount of damage to all of us, especially those of us who are loved by racists. That's
0: so good. That's really good. I'm just thinking more about that. Like the end of your book that you, I mean, we can't, I don't want to give it away, but that you're right, that there are members of our families family members who we have to figure out how to live and exist with. And sometimes it's better to be together than be right. And I think
1: there's also the idea inherent in that is the idea that um, I think there's a there's an easy out that whiteness gives itself in that situation, which is, you know, ultimately love Trump's, you know, whatever, you know, my racism, like ultimately you understand that I love you. And I I always want to say back, no, I, I I understand that you love me. And also you are racist Mm -hmm. is what I understand. And I am still in the room because I love you. And I love your son and I love my son. And this is a room I have to stand in to make sure that I can love all my people. Well,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but this is not, this act doesn't come because your heart is doing something wonderful for us.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Mira Jacob, thank you so much for your time. You've been so generous. We we really appreciate it. And it was such a good, lovely conversation. You were about to say good talk, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> this
2: was a good talk. This was a good talk, motherfucker. <laughs> it was really
1: fun talking with you too. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
2: Effing Shakespeare is a production of Houston Creative Space, hosted by Kate Martin Williams, Jessica Cole, and me, Fulu. Lu. Our trusty and hardworking intern is Sanviti Sedev. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever podcasts are found.
1: So we don't feel weird about the fact that what was actually in that, Jack, was my child's I hot gonna, tamale that had somehow, ask. like, wedged it. Yeah, yeah, like, I was like, what is keeping it? And it came out, and I was like, fucking hot tamale. Yeah. Like, like yeah. the
0: Halloween candy, the hot
1: tamale. Yeah, like, he must have put, I I did find a bunch of hot tamales in the back of my, in the bottom of my bag at one point, and I was like, what is this? How did this happen? And that's, like, when I, when I literally, I, like, pulled it out, and it was, like, this red stuff, and I was like, fucking hot tamale! And then, yeah,
2: anyway. That's perfect.